Hi, everyone. I'm Kia Collier. Um, I'm a reporter at the Texas Tribune. I cover public education and the environment. Um, on behalf of the, the Texas Tribune, I'm really pleased to announce uh, or to, to welcome you guys to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival um, and to this panel, uh, Public Education and the Legislature. To my right, we have features the exact people uh, you'd want to hear from <laughs> on this topic. Um, to my right, we have um, uh, State Representative Jimmy Don Acock, a Republican from Colleen, uh, who has chaired the House Public Education Committee since 2013. Uh, and has represented House District 54 and the Texas House since 2007. Uh, previously, ACOC, who is a veterinarian, uh, served as captain in the U.S. Army um, and sat on the Clean Independent School Board. Um, further down is State Senator Eddie Lucio, Jr., um, who is vice chairman of the Senate Education Committee. Uh, Lucio has represented Senate District 27 since 1991. Uh, previously, he served as a Cameron County uh, Treasurer and a Cameron County Commissioner before that. Um, further down is State Representative uh, Mary Gonzalez, a Democrat from Clint, uh, who was first elected in 2012 to represent uh, House District 75, um, and she serves on the House Public Education Committee. Uh, previously, Gonzalez was a capital staffer uh, and served as assistant director in the Office of Research and Demonstration at the National Hispanic Institute. Uh, to her right is State Senator Larry Taylor, a Republican from Friendswood, who uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick chose earlier this year to succeed him as chair of the Senate Education Committee. Uh, Taylor was elected to represent Senate District 11 in 2012 after serving five terms in the Texas House, um, and he owns Truman Taylor Insurance Agency in Friendswood. Uh, to his right is uh, State Representative John Otto, a Republican from Dayton, who House Speaker Joe Strauss chose early, earlier this year to head the budget writing uh, House Appropriations Committee. Um, and he is appropriately an accountant. <laughs> um, uh, before becoming chairman, he also headed the Article Three Budget Subcommittee, which oversees the public education section of the budget, so he knows uh, public ed financing really well. Um, uh, previously, he served on the Dayton City Council um, and the Dayton School Board. Um, so this panel will last for 60 minutes uh, and include a 15 to 20 minute Q&A session at the end. Uh, there will be microphones out in the audience um, during that, and we encourage you to, to line up and, and use them. Um, and before we start our, ch our chat, I'll ask you to please silence your cell phones. Uh, and if you're going to tweet at all, please use the has hashtag TTF. Um, so I wanted to start out uh, for the sake of timeliness with uh, uh, asking about standardized testing. Um, yesterday, uh, Commissioner Williams announced or, or clarified um, that uh, House Bill 743 will apply um, not only to just writing tests, but to, to all tests. Um, uh, the bill is designed to make tests so that 85% of students can pass within a certain amount of time, um, two and a half hours or three hours. Um, also this session, we had a bill uh, from Senator Seliger allowing some high school students to graduate um, despite failing to, uh, up to two of their five end of course exams. Um, and then Chairman Taylor um, authored a bill that passed that creates a special commission to study, develop, uh, and make recommendations for new systems of student assessment and school accountability. Um, so, you know, there's an obvious kind of backlash, ongoing backlash against standardized testing. And, and what I wanted to ask you guys um, is, you know, are we getting to a place where uh, we're going to get rid of, you know, the test completely, or are we just going to scrap the STAR test and start over? What kind of, you know, reforms are we looking for there? Where do you see the legislature going with that? Maybe Chairman Taylor, you can start off. 
Well, I, I think we're in a, a hopefully a period of transformation. Uh, I think the testing has gotten out of hand. You know, session before last, we'd gotten up to 17 tests you had to pass to graduate. We reduced that to five. And then we still have a, some problems with some of the tests that are remaining, particularly the writing assessment test has a lot of issues. We're very bright students who are already being accepted to college and doing all kind of great things can't pass this 26-line writing assessment that we do, uh, which is very unique to Texas, by the way. No one else tests on a 26-line composition. Uh, I remember the five-paragraph theme, which made sense. I'm not sure where 26 lines came from. Uh, then maybe the lines on a sheet of paper. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, I think this, this new gener next generation is accountability and assessments commission has great potential to change this. We have to have some type of accountability because you remember where this all came from was when Ross Perot back in the early 80s, the whole deal when people were graduating after 12 years of Texas public education and couldn't read. You know, obviously that was no accountability. So we're never going to go back to that. But, but the accountability and the assessment needs to be meaningful and actually needs to be helpful to the student not just be used as a measuring stick for the, for the district or the school campus. So I think this is really a good opportunity to bring all the stakeholders together to sit around and talk about what do we want these kids to learn after 12 years of public ed? How do we make sure we're measuring that? And how do we use that to help the kids and, and help them improve their education? So I think it's going to be really exciting things. I'm looking forward to working on that commission. What uh, will come out of that specifically? Um, well, I we say I'm not the expert. We're bringing in experts as part of that. We are having the chairman of education in the House and the Senate and higher ed, House and Senate. But the rest of them, are, they're stakeholders. They're testing experts. They're pu public educators, uh, educational experts. We're going to have those people all working together to make this thing. And also the business community as well as the community at large and be a part of this. So it's something that all Texas can, can gather around and say, this is going to be what we're going to do. And we're going to make sure that it works for all of our students. Chairman Aycock, do you want to weigh in on where you've seen things go with standardized testing and where you see them going? I think you first have to decide what you want to measure and what you want to do with them at large. I think if we're trying to assess the schools or the system at large, then a statistical sampling procedure would be a better procedure. If you're wanting to assess individual student performance and coach them and their instructors on how to proceed educationally, then I think a, a more immediate feedback hopefully will emerge. Electronic, digital stuff will certainly let you do immediate feedback where the, where the teachers can say, this student understands this concept and this student doesn't. I think we will eventually move to that sort of concept pretty quickly now that that technology is, in, is getting in place. But I think part of our problem has been that we tried to, to use one instrument on one day, as I've said, to to do a variety of things, which probably didn't do a real good job of any of the things it was set up to do. Representative Gonzalez, what are you hearing from your constituency on standardized testing, or what are your, your views? Where would you like to see things go? I think Chairman Acock hit it right on the head. I, I, from parents to students to teachers, it's really not working for anybody. And so um, Chairman Taylor brought up a good point. The, the next few years are a period of transformation. And I'm really excited about seeing how, how we use the test, not necessarily in a punitive way, but as a diagnostic way to really help and support our students and our teachers to make sure that we are creating an education system that is preparing Texas for the next generation. I think maybe because I'm one of the youngest members on the floor, I think about what is Texas going to look like 20 years from now when my kids are finally in school. And so making sure we do something relatively soon to change the system is very important. Um, 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask about uh, school finance, school funding. Um, not a lot happened with that <laughs> this last session, ultimately, but um, it's on the brain with um, you know, a long-running case pending before the Supreme Court. Um, at oral arguments last month, um, the state argued that the court should stay out of school funding um, completely and leave it to the legislature, uh, which raised some eyebrows because that's not historically how it's been done. Um, and also begging the question you know, of what the legislature would do with school finance um, if that were to happen. Uh, meanwhile, only about 70% 70% of schools are back to uh, their per-student funding levels where they were at before 2011. Um, and that year, the legislature cut, I mean, as we all know, $5.4 billion from uh, public ed. Um, several of you uh, have told me or you expected or at least hoped the court would remand the case, uh, given all the changes the legislature has made in the last two sessions, uh, restoring kind of a, you know, a lot of the funding. Um, uh, but I'm wondering, you know, has the legislature done enough since 2011 for the court to dismiss um, dismiss this lawsuit? And is there an appetite to continue to get back to 2011 funding to do? And will the legislature do, you know, do anything uh, if a court doesn't tell it to do uh, do something with school finance? Chairman Otto, as lead budget writer, do you want to <laughs> weigh in on that? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. My first session was 2005 when we were under a waiting on a court decision. I remember distinctly we had three special sessions, two in 2005, one in 2006. That's when we ended up adopting the uh, margins tax, as it's called, and the additional cigarette tax, and, and bought the rate down from the $1.50 to the dollar. What was interesting, having been through that, and, and now we've got another lawsuit, essentially the same challenges, the same complaints, my question is, when I went back and read the court's decision in 2006, I didn't, not once did I see a definition of adequate, not once did I see a definition of, you know, equity. What I was, what that decision said was, you've got a statewide property tax de facto, fix it. And that's what we did. So my question is, even if we get a decision, what will that decision say? And how broad will it be? Uh, you know, I don't know that the court wants to get into a definitive. Unfortunately, those two words are not defined in our Constitution. So uh, I, I told somebody, in my mind, unless we are going to find a different way to finance schools with the changes in property values, unless you go to something that Chairman Acock has uh, had in his back pocket for one session to uh, consolidate tax districts in this state down to a manageable number, you're always going to end up with a redistribution of wealth because of the changes in appraisals and the growth in certain districts. So how do you overcome that on a permanent basis? So I don't know that I, you know, I don't know whether the court will decide to remand or not. Have we put more money in education since the lawsuit? Yes, we definitely have. I happen to think one of the biggest changes was House Bill 5 two sessions ago. When you talk about testing, we're, we're not even far enough down the road yet. But to me, and I've told Chairman Acock, I'm, when I leave uh, this, at the end of this term, I will be most proud of my work having helped co-author that bill through because it finally recognized that not every child in this state is going to go to a four-year college, and we were leaving a bunch of them behind. And so, you know, 
That, I think, I don't know if the court, if there's enough evidence out there to show, wait a minute, what does that do to the cost of education when you're changing the curriculum that way? Uh, so it's anybody's guess as to what the court's going to do. Uh, but, you know, my only hope is, and I don't know that I expect this to happen, they would be a little more definitive in what is the fix? Okay. What, is, what does the legislature have to do in order to stay out of this? Assuming that more money is involved, I mean, in some capacity, um, one question I've gotten a lot is, uh, will falling oil prices affect the, ch the odds or the chances that public ed funding will, will increase and get back to 2011 levels and beyond? What it's, are your, it's not your just public ed funding. If you just read the comptroller's updated uh, you know, right. post-session revenue estimate, he estimates, and, and I don't want to paint, it's not a doom and gloom picture, but members have a tendency to compare to what it was like the previous session. Well, there's no way we're going to come back in and or they're going to come back in, in in 2017 in the condition we were in in 2015. He's predicting right now, based on the oil prices, about a little over $4.4 billion in reserves. That sounds pretty good, but all but $740 million of that is dedicated funds that you can't really use. So you're looking at all things being equal. If his estimate is accurate, the next legislature is going to walk in with a non-dedicated general revenue balance of $740 million to deal with the supplemental and to deal with ongoing costs, depending on what the new revenue estimate is that he gives for the coming biennium. Right. So everything will be competing as, as usual. Yes. Everything will be competing next session. Uh, you know, we will not walk in with $8 billion in surplus with about half of that being GRD and half of it being GR. I just don't see that happening with where oil and gas is today. I just read an article in the Chronicle today that Schlumberger is not predicting a very bright future in the immediate future for the next 12 months. Right, They're right. planning additional layoffs. Senator Lucio, uh, one focus of, you know, of Democrats since the 2011 budget cuts has been you know, restoring pub ad funding and all that. Where do you, do you have hope that that will happen or what are your uh, hopes I, I for where that will go? I taught back in the 1960s, I was 20 years old and I can tell you, I, I taught in two different middle schools that were, uh, the children were very poor. Uh, I, I represent a five county area, South Texas, uh, most of that district is impoverished, as you well know. A lot of poor school districts. Um, and I've always been a supporter of, uh, of adequ uh, adequate and uh, uh, equitable funding for our public school systems. I voted uh, against the budget uh, that cut five point, uh, over $5 billion in, in education funding in 2011. And Texas needs to cater it um, tirelessly for the restoration of those funds ever since. Uh, Texas needs to fairly allocate uh, sufficient funding uh, to its public schools to ensure that all children, no matter where they live in Texas, have the opportunity to succeed and thrive in, uh, in their school. I would, be, I, I would not be surprised if the Supreme Court again rules that uh, public school funding in Texas is inadequate since uh, we still have not made up for the $5.4 billion we cut from that program in 2011. Uh, as our student population uh, continues to grow rapidly, it will be imperative to ensure that our schools are funded adequately. Lastly, I want to say that I applaud Chairman Aycock's decision to pump an additional $3 billion into the school finance formula through House Bill 1759. 
Uh, however, that bill did not address the in, uh, inadequate funding of certain classes of students such as English uh, language learners and low-income students through the formula weights. Weights is an important word in South Texas and other parts of the state. Uh, these weights, uh, which have not been updated in over 25 years, uh, do not fully reflect the additional costs associated uh, with educating these students. So I hope uh, that the, the Senate uh, Education Committee will examine the possibility of updating uh, these ways to provide more equ equitable distribution of school funds in Texas during the next uh, legislative session. And I, I'm here to applaud everyone that is here, quite frankly, because uh, I know where your hearts are. Being in this room, it means they're with our children in Texas. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Chairman Acog, you're kind of the obvious person to ask about this. As Senator Lucio referenced, you had this $3 billion plan to fix school finance that failed. That went well. <laughs> <laughs> um, it failed amid a lack of support from, Senator Lucio support rather from school districts um, and the Senate. Um, uh, Senator Lucio brought up weight, the issue of weights and all that. Uh, you know, uh, what challenges do you foresee? I, with the legislature fixing oh, school wow. finance and what, um, we, where do you we, see, we don't foresee have that, that going? Much time. Um, first, let's, let's take the where it's going. I think there's better than even chance that the courts will remand it back to the district court for further review, which puts it in a limbo state for at least another couple of years, perhaps longer. Uh, but guessing what the Supreme Court will do is, is a hazardous peril. Um, so, so that's my best guess. As far as longer-term solutions, I think Representative Mato mentioned what was early in sessions, HB 658, which created school finance districts, which are different than the, the established districts. I think in the long term, I don't know how many years it'll take to get there, but I think in the long term, coalescing to a fewer number of taxing districts is the only solution that will actually emerge as, as a long-term solution. Be because sure you make sure you stress that taxing district. This is not consolidating. This is not consolidating school district. That's, the C word is, is not C in word there. is a bad word in rural, yeah. rural Texas. But, but to think that you can have a thousand plus taxing units based primarily on, on property wealth taxation, the disparity in those units is so broad that it's almost impossible to design a system that that's maintainable over a long period of time because you fix it today and a few years later, the, the values change, the growth changes in different areas, demographics change. And, and so you're right back in the same situation. And, and as a result of that, we're in a historical cycle of these lawsuits. So I think long-term, the answer is to coalesce the, the number of taxing districts. In the shorter term, weights is an important issue, allotments are an important issue. The, the reality is that while the legislature gets, gets kicked for not being willing to fund schools, the real struggle and turmoil occurs between school entities. Uh, I call it the circular firing squad, where you have one group of schools that sees it this way and one group of schools that sees it this way and one part of the state that sees it this way. You got big schools, little schools, rich schools, poor schools, urban schools, and, and they all have a different perspective and they all have an association and those associations stand in line and shoot at each other. And, and as a result, 
instead of getting $3 billion, they got half of that. Yeah. And so uh, it's a little frustrating. Well, that strikes at the heart of the issue of you know, why school finance is so difficult. But they don't tell us how. Right. Why historically the court has forced the legislature to do something about it. They say it, but they don't tell us how. Right, right. Do you foresee um, the legislature you know, uh, consolidating taxing entities without a court telling it to do that? Probably not. Right. Um, and you still think that the court will remand this current case? Like I said, it's a peril to, to try to outguess Texas Supreme Court justice. But if, if you look at the facts of the case and the events since the case was filed. It's sort of been remanded back once, pretty much, for further review. Other things have happened since then. I, my guess is, if I were one of those justices, I'd probably remand it back and say, review this further, and, and hopefully give some guidance when they do that. I, I think it's difficult for the legislature to, to formulate plans of this nature anyhow, much less without fairly clear guidance from what would be acceptable. Um, I'm going to uh, shift gears here a bit. I have a lot to get to. Um, uh, the future of school choice. Uh, <laughs> Chairman Taylor, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick gave your committee you know, some interim charges um, this past week um, regarding uh, you know, looking at the way other states do, do uh, vouchers or tax credit scholarship programs. Um, you guys passed a bill out of the Senate. That was a tax credit scholarship bill um, this session. It continued to be blocked by the House. Um, where, where do you foresee that, that going, the school choice conversation going? Will the Senate continue to push that um, this next session? I mean, obviously will, but in what, in what way? Um, well, and what, what would you like to see happen? I think if you look at what we did last session with the tax credit scholarships, I, I think that's as far as we can hopefully get the House to do. I mean, I think the Senate will pass something like that again. I, I think it was a very good bill. It gave private entities the opportunity to, to contribute to the local schools. Uh, in fact, it did help public schools. We gave them a $500 voucher for, for people attending public schools, as well as you know, giving scholarships for some students, you know, 250% of federal poverty level to attend private schools. So I, I thought that was a pretty reasonable um, opportunity for some of the kids. They're, they're basically, some of them are trapped. Um, so I, I think you'll see that. I think it'll be an interesting interim to have those discussions about how other states are doing it. You know, we are behind in that respect uh, of, of opportunities for, for some of our students who are trapped in some failing schools. So at the same time, we also need to make sure our, our schools get better. But I think in some of those cases, competition will be good for some of those failing schools. I mean, they, they need to, you know, sometimes you can motivate by pushing from behind. Other times you can motivate by leading and other people striving for that. So I think we need to have all those things working at one time. The problem is we have a lot of great schools in Texas, but we have some that flat out aren't good school, and we have students that are stuck in those schools. And if you're one of those children stuck in a school like that, you are being held back by your own state. And I just don't, as a legislator, I can't see that happening. In a state as great as ours, we cannot afford to leave any of our students behind. And particularly, you got a whole campus or a whole district excuse me, being left behind. That's just not acceptable in my book. So whatever we can do to make sure that that doesn't continue to happen, I'm looking to, to help make that happen. Can I kick in with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think um, political party labels should not be a factor in how we vote on this particular issue. I was the only Democrat that voted uh, for it in the Senate. Uh, I've always been a supporter of public schools, uh, not only as a teacher, but also as a legislator for the last 
28, 29 years now. However, I have had too many constituents approach me uh, lately and tell me that their children, many of whom have special needs, are simply not performing uh, well in their current public schools. So these parents, and more importantly, these children, uh, need options to ensure that they uh, are in the best possible learning environments. And I, I, I really feel that and think that uh, is something that we need to look at. The, uh, the school choice uh, program that I support uh, were never intended to replace the public school system, never. I'll repeat that. It's not supposed to replace the public school system. They are limited in scope, first of all, and are intended to provide additional options, uh, specifically uh, to those students um, most in need of extra help. Uh, lastly, the uh, Center Bill 4, which Chairman Taylor authored extremely well, would uh, have provided tax credits to businesses in Texas who donated to educational assistance organizations. This is not a voucher scheme, in my opinion, uh, which uh, take money directly from the public schools to fund private ones. This is a tax credit, like hundreds of other tax incentives that the state and federal governments offer businesses and individuals. The bill includes provisions, and this is important, uh, for using business contributions to pay for additional services for students who remain in public schools. And that's, that's a point that we need to look at when we uh, look at the overall bill. Representative Gonzalez, you're a fellow Democrat. Do you, um, are there Democrats in the House who feel this way? You know, um, I'm the oldest of 11 children. And I want all of my siblings to have access. They distract great education. And sometimes when we do or promote these school choice initiatives, they, they distract from strengthening all our public schools. They help some kids and don't help all kids. All kids, all the millions of kids that we have in our public school system deserve to have a great education. And we have legislation that was proposed that would not distract from strengthening our public schools, but actually look at the ones that are struggling and, and, and try to find a ways to make those better, as opposed to taking a few kids out of the struggling schools and, and putting them in a, in a, in a, on a track. You know, Representative Rodriguez had his community schools piece of legislation, which we know, through research, actually strengthens our public schools. But that bill didn't pass. And so there are things that we could be doing now that would really make sure that all kids have a strong public school system, as opposed to only some kids um, taking, being taken out of their local and community schools. So I'm going to gracefully disagree. <laughs> all right. Um, Chairman Acog, you announced your retirement earlier this year. You yes. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> we're, very, we're very sad. Yeah. You, I mean, you've historically have led you know, a group of rural you know, uh, lawmakers who have opposed vouchers and blocked them. It's a long history. Mm, I'm not sure you've been, you've been part. That. You've been part of that, that group, part of the, the opposition to I, vouchers. I, let, let, me, let me clarify that. Okay. I'm not as opposed to school choice issues as I'm often painted as being. Okay. I am intent that if we're going to spend state dollars, either directly or indirectly, I want some accountability for where it goes. I want to know that it's going to a good quality school, that there's measurements in place for monitoring that. I think simply to hand out a voucher or any other form of state paid money and not have some accountability for how it's being spent 
either in the nature of the school. Um, there, there are all kinds of private schools out there that would love to have that money, some of which are doing wonderful jobs, some of which are not doing so well. Right. And, and I want some accountability to follow that money. So far, the private providers have not been real keen on, on linking the two together. And so I think that's part of the House's hesitancy to move that direction. Is that there seems to be a disconnect between the accountability side and the money side. Do you think there's a you know a, a avenue for a compromise there? Do you foresee the house? You know? Oh, I think I think if you if you selected schools that were willing to participate in an accountability program, then I think it would, would might change that discussion considerably. Chairman Taylor, does that sound good to you? <laughs> what? Yeah. Are you brokering a deal right here? Zoom. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's always no, room for, no. for working together and finding a position. That's what we do in the legislature every day on every bill we ever pass. Uh, I've never come up with a great idea that passed all the way through the, through the legislature without any changes. Apparently there's a lot of other smart people there, too. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, 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 that's what I'm saying. I think this interim having these discussions will be very helpful to help shape what we do in the next session. But I think there will be some kind of a, a school choice uh, thing, but I, I think these discussions will be very helpful in the meantime to help shape those discussions and, and what comes out at the end of the next session. Chairman Otto, you're, you know, I guess, uh, running for re-election. What do you foresee the House, um, the House's appetite for, for vouchers or a tax credit scholarship program you being? I am or not? You, you are, I, I believe. No. You're not running for re-election. No. Okay. I'm, well, I'm following Mr. Acock as a, as out a long the door. Time, as a long-time House member, what do you... <laughs> We're sitting up here with a couple of quitters. That's right. I <laughs> as a long-time House member, I mean, what, where do you foresee the appetite for vouchers going in the House in well, the Well, you know, I, it's, it's interesting, and I agree with Chairman Acock that I, it's, the, it's the accountability. Plus, if the vouchers, if the tax credits were targeted to the district's where the need is. I don't have that. I don't have options in my district, all right? Charter schools get funded higher than every one of my schools in my district but one, all right? So if I'm representing my district, why should I go vote to send more of that money out instead of coming to my schools? Uh, you know, that's, that's what we're sent there for. So if you know, if it were targeted, if there were accountability, if we were truly, uh, you know, bracketing the bill to go after it, you know, why do we have to do the whole state at one time? Why can't we pick some districts and let's go try this? You know, I read an article the other day. It's interesting to me. We want to send people out and give them a voucher to a private school. And I read that a lot of private schools are using Common Core. Well, my gosh, we, you know, we, we went ballistic on allowing that in our public schools. So are we gonna, it's gonna be okay to do it in the public, in the private? You know, when we send these kids out? None of that has, to me, has been discussed about, it's just that, well, the private sector can do it better. They may be in some situations, because obviously there are kids, like you say, that are getting, they're just, they're trapped. And those kids I do wanna help, but not at the expense of my kids. Sure. Um, this kind of strikes the issue of, you know, conflict and partisanship. And uh, Senator Lucio, you've, uh, you're the longest serving member on, on this panel in the legislature. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, uh, have you witnessed a growing partisanship in, in public education? And what's your member of a public session? And do you foresee it getting worse or better? Partisanship? Partisanship over uh, public education issues. 
Well, like I said, I, I think uh, when I sit in that panel, I, I don't look at party labels. Um, I don't look at an issue um, and, and see whether or not how it's been handled in, by different political parties, by both political major parties in Texas. I look at, I look at and I think about the district I represent. Um, I look at the parents I've talked to. You know, parents count. <laughs> yeah, they're taxpayers. Uh, businesses um, also count. They uh, provide the funds that are necessary for us to to run uh, our public educational system in Texas. Uh, so I, I look at all those factors. Plus, I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention it again. I'll, uh, I, I, I use my faith um, every day to make decisions that I feel will be um, beneficial to uh, especially the 250,000 children that I represent, uh, most of which are very poor. Um, so I, I, I try to do what's best for them, uh, not what's best for the, my political party. Uh, but I'm, I'm proud to, 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 to be where I'm at uh, and the party that I'm, I'm with. But there's wonderful people across the aisle that I've had the honor and pleasure to, to be with for the last uh, three decades. And I, I can tell you, I've, I've made great friends, uh, some are on, on this stage right now, who I uh, would give my shirt off my back for. So I, I, we have to respect uh, people's uh, uh, you know, ideas and uh, needs and, and try to come up with a solution. That's why we're there. We were elected to work with one another to find solutions. And um, as long as I'm, I'm able to, to be here, um, that's going to be my approach. What about you, Representative Gonzalez? Um, I think education is actually one of those places where there is some opportunity for us to work together. I, I sat on public education, and Jimmy Don was a great chairman and someone I would consider a mentor. Um, Representative Van Dever and Dr. Farney had, made great, had great bills and made great points. And I think that, more than anything, this was a space where we could really look beyond some partisan conversations and work together. When I, when we were when some of us were concerned about the A through F accountability rating, no, it was Chairman Phillips who got up there and had concerns, and me and him stood at the back mic having those conversations about how detrimental that piece of legislation would be to, for our Texas schools. So, in some instances where the legislature is very partisan, there are some pieces of education policy where we can look at it beyond Democrats or Republicans and say, how is this going to hurt our students, our teachers, our community? And there, that, to me, has, was the highlight of this legislative session, working together on education policy. Lots of optimism. Yeah, if I could <laughs> I just throw in, I'm on yeah, the Senate yeah. Education Committee. I saw Senator West when I walked in here. Senator Lucio's on there. We, we have a great relationship, and it's not a party line issue. Everyone's representing their district, and it's really more rural, urban, suburban on education than it is party labels. This, this is just where we have to find consensus, and it's a very big state. And so it's hard to come up with laws that apply you know, equally well across the state. So that's, that's really where the challenge is. This isn't Republican, Democrat. This is where we come from. Where, who are we representing? What kind of an area part of the state do we represent? And that's, that's challenging. It's very difficult in a big state like this, but we have a great group. We had some great discussions in our committee. Uh, and, and coming to consensus on a lot of bills that start off very, very divided. By the time we work through the process, we had everybody on the committee voting for it. So that's what I mean by working through the legislative process. Sure. 
Um, last question I'll ask before we go to um, Q and audience Q&A is uh, uh, what the 2017 agenda will look like. <clears throat> We're obviously seeing you know, some glimmers of that with interim charges. Uh, Speaker Strauss should come out with his soon. But what, um, what are we going to see on the public education agenda in, in 2017? What issues need to be addressed that have not been addressed? Um, what issues is there appetite to address? Um, anyone's um, welcome to uh, answer that? Chairman Acock. <laughs> I won't be there. I know. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> He's devastated. Uh, Chairman Taylor. Well, yeah, I, I continue to look forward to moving Texas education in the 21st century, whether that's using technology or innovative techniques. Uh, we just need to keep moving forward. If we were the greatest school system in the world today, if we didn't make any changes, we'd be behind tomorrow because the world is changing very quickly. So we have to be able to and willing to embrace change and look for those ways. And efficient means using, frankly, our Constitution requires, it includes the word efficient. And efficient means using more things and better ways of doing things to get more out of every dollar that we spend. Because there's not unlimited funds for education. We have got to get better with every dollar we have and make sure that dollar is very well spent and getting the most bang for our buck that we can. So I, I look forward to those types of issues. We have some little issues going around, around the edges. I say little. We have the accountability and assessment. Hopefully we'll have our commission report. Well, I know we'll have it. And we may be able to implement some of those things. You know, a, lot of time, a lot of these things that are major like this may take more than one session, but we can get started on that process to really make sure it makes, makes a difference for our schools and for our students. Bottom line is about improving education in Texas. Right. Senator Lucio? I think we need to look around um, our communities and see who, who's doing the job we, we, we'd like to see done in public education. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was just incredibly uh, floored, uh, for lack of a better word. I was just so happy, really. I went and visited one of my schools before I came up here. Olmito Elementary School got a blue ribbon designation. You know, one of 348 schools in the country uh, for, you know, th their ability to, their kids' performance, academic performance. And, and this is a poor school. Uh, but yet, I saw an incredible uh, electrifying type of love going back and forth between the students, their teachers, the principal. The cafeteria workers were sitting there. Everyone that took part in educating that child with, they were there in that room receiving a, a proclamation from the Senate um, and, and a Texas flag. Um, and, and it was just a wonderful thing to see, a very warm type uh, environment uh, to see these children smiling. And, and um, I know that some of the bills that we passed together bipartisanly have worked. Our nutritional programs now in our public schools have been expanded from lunch into breakfast programs, and they're eating good foods. And that, to me, is everything. A child cannot learn in an empty stomach. So we need to continue to, to be patient with one another if we disagree on issues and come together and, and find a solution, give and take a little bit. But uh, I'm, I'm so happy with uh, all that has happened uh, with our dedicated uh, public school teachers, uh, our leaders. And, you know, leading is not the ability to tell people what to do. It's the ability to make people want to do the right thing through example. And our teachers live a wonderful example of what's right 
for our kids, and I'm, I'm just a happy camper, so I can let, tell you. Let me ask a more specific question about what could be on the 2017 agenda. There's an ongoing um, you know, standoff between Texas and the U.S. Department of Education over the uh, No Child Left Behind waiver. Uh, teacher evaluations, whether the state can mandate uh, you know, a teacher evaluation system statewide. Um, outgoing Commissioner uh, Williams has you know, repeatedly referenced the law bans him from doing that. Um, is there any appetite to uh, change the law regarding teacher evaluations so the state can maintain its waiver? Chairman Taylor, maybe? Well, you know, dealing with the feds is a problem we deal with a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, on a lot of different issues. Uh, I think we can do better for Texas with Texas bill last sessions. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, you know we we had a bill last session to help work on improving teacher performance by you know evaluations and things that they would do to peer to peer, and really help them to be a better teacher. And unfortunately, that didn't get through the process. We had some issues that, frankly, some of them weren't even true. They were brought up, but that, that, well, we're trying to do that. We we don't. We want to make sure our teachers are the very best they can be. We don't need a bad teacher in any classroom in Texas. Uh, so Lots of money is on the table, though. I mean, you know. Uh, oh, I know. The federal, yeah, no, no question about it. Yeah. So obviously we're going to have to look at that, depending on how this dis discussion goes in the interim. We obviously can't do anything about it right now unless it gets bad enough. We have to have, to have a special session over it. Uh, but that will certainly be part of the discussion, depending on how that decision is rendered between now and then, between the feds and the, our education commissioner. And, you know, he can't do it on his own. I don't think he can. Um, that, that would be a law. So I, I think that's, you know, we're kind of on, on hold on that until session. But obviously, okay. depending on how that goes, we're going to have to jump in there and, and do something about that. Chairman Aycock, was there any discussion about that before? Um, oh, there's been lots of discussion about and, that. And what, uh, what one, it's always happening? unpopular when the federal government steps in and tries to tell Texas what to do. Right. Uh, that, that always goes well. Uh, <laughs> There, there's an ongoing debate about whether testing should be the prime parameter by which you measure teachers because there's lots of debate about the appropriateness of the test and how it's applied and how it's administered and all that sort of stuff. So all that whole realm of, of discussion out there. I think the more interesting question will be the rewrite of No Child Left Behind and how it progresses through the Congress. Um, while we're on that point, let me just throw this out and get it out of my way. There, there's been a lot of discussion about the result of, of college preparedness testing over the last 10 years, not only in Texas, but pretty much nationwide. And, and to me, at least, the most direct correlation is that since we started No Child Left Behind, there's been a st steady downward trend in college readiness testing. I think there's a linkage. I think No Child Left Behind has made it very difficult to let the, the more advanced students advance. And therefore, that test result is showing that because it's much harder to move that, that low socioeconomic student from, from their experience level to a, to a really good productive level of education. And it's hard to move that when it's really easy to retard the top. And I think we retarded the top on moving the bottom very little with no child left behind. So I hope as they look to rewrite that that whole piece of legislation that it changed. Oh, there are microphones. Damn, somewhat. Okay, I would love to ask a follow-up question on that, but we'll go to audience Q&A now. There are microphones here if you want to um, line up and um, have your questions ready. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, 
the panel. I'm Carl Jones. I'm from Spicewood. In regard to uh, <clears throat> the alternative education measures, such as school vouchers, charter schools, and school choice, uh, many times one of the that you hear, and I'm sure you've heard too, is there's a lot of apprehension and fear about some of these uh, private providers, uh, education providers, that if they are uh, allocated state funding, taxpayer money, do they have a mechanism many times that they can get away with where they can pick and choose their students to the exclusion of those students that need it the most in some of the lower income districts in the state? And is there going, if you're going to advocate that type of alternative education approaches, is there any mechanism, is there any filter that you can put in to ensure that there is a fairness that these children can have access to if you're going to divert taxpayer money at the expense of the public schools to where these lower income students in the South Texas Chair, districts, yeah. for example, Chairman Taylor, do you want to take can, that, can that have one? Access to. Well, charter schools are already required to take all students. So, I mean, they're doing that today. So when you bring up charter schools, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, think, I think as far as accountability, you know, that's one of the points of negotiating needs to be discussed because the private schools a lot of times don't want to be involved in a voucher program. They don't want to take on all the state testing, those types of things. So there has to be some kind of a way to, you know, monitor that that you're not just throwing money out the door, but they're getting a, you know, a good education. But the level of how that is done is up for discussion. So that's part of the, part of the discussion that goes on when we talk about any kind of school choice things. I think part of the problem is, is that it is, it's geography, right? So half of my district is rural. So if we give out vouchers, the students who live in Tornillo ISD, which is 80 miles to maybe the closest high-achieving private school, it's not really accessible for them. It's a low-income, Spanish-speaking community. So the problem necessarily in, when we do these school choice programs is they're not really available to all Texas students. A lot of it is determined by geography, and that's what creates the unfairness when we do these types of initiatives. All of you, and for opportunity, obviously, uh, to hear from, from all of you and others in Texas who feel they want to discuss this uh, issue even further during the interim, we will be obviously discussing it and taking in information that will uh, once again uh, uh, have some of us uh, maybe thinking of moving on with the issue as we support it or rethinking what we should be doing. So I, I look forward to the interim studies that will be taking place on this issue. The young woman at the back mic. Hi, um, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Online public education has grown increasingly over the past few years and is a large part of the school choice discussion. Um, I myself attended an online school in the state of Texas for five years, and I want to know how you plan to include this group of students in your plans for the future of public education in the state of Texas and equalize your opportunity with, for higher ed and the job market with those who attend traditional models of school. Maybe another Chairman Taylor well, one. I think online she's talking learning. about online learning. And yeah, I'm, yeah. And I think that's one of the things about moving into the 21st century. You talk about your students who are 80 miles away. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is a way, now think about it. If you're in some of these very rural areas of Texas, a long way, you're not going to get the very best physics teacher or math or high level science. I mean, 
geographically, it's going to be hard to get. You may get one, but to have all the students have access. But through the internet, you can pipe those great teachers in, and you can have a, a student teacher somewhere in the classroom with the kids actually learning as well. These master teachers could be teaching all over the state of Texas, and you can reach students wherever they may be with some of the best. I've always said this. I live near NASA. Not everyone else is that fortunate, but you can have NASA astronauts and engineers discussing how they address problems in space and inspiring kids all over the state of Texas. They may not live in proximity. They could have that availability like we do in our area. So that's what I'm talking about with the 21st century. These are the types of innovations that we can have. And we had a number of folks come together and talk about have done the, you know, the online experience. And they had their own community doing that. It's different than the rest of us. For some people, that's a great choice. I personally wouldn't do it that way. But to deny people that that works well for them and they're doing very well with their university and their later on careers, we should not deny them that. So I, once again, I think we need to look at all these options. This is part of, part of moving Texas in the 21st century for education and letting all these kids have these. We have kids who are gifted and talented in so many different ways. And our challenge as legislators is to reach all those kids and give them all the maximum potential that they can have and to give them the opportunities to meet their maximum potential. Right. Chairman, Chairman Acock, you want to weigh in? I think we will continue to see a, an advance in, in online education. And, but one of the charges I hope my committee gets has that online, I, I think we will, is that not all of the state of Texas has that online capability. If you're in Austin or oh, even Killeen or, or Temple Belton, like in my part of the world, you have access to that wonderful internet. But if you're over in Lomita or, or Terlingua, or some of these other places around the state that are, are more remote, the people who need that access the most and to get to those good, some of your folks, uh, the f people who need that access the most are the very ones who don't have it. And, and so I think that's one of the things the state has to address is how do we get that online availability to, to deliver that instruction. Challenge. Hi, my name is Justin. I'm a student at UT Austin. Uh, so uh, Senator Lucio touched on students with special needs, and so I just wanted to know how English language learners fit into this conversation and what we can do to better address their needs. Uh, repeat that for me. Uh, so he asked how uh, English language learners, um, their needs can be addressed, better addressed by the legislature. And this could be for anyone. Um, Go ahead. I think there's a lot of things we can do for English language learners. I have a very a high Spanish-speaking district. For example, our English language learners who recently immigrate to the United States still have to take our standardized testing. They get a 60-day um, period where if they just immigrated, they don't have to take the test. But if they've been here for a year, still don't speak our language, still have to take the test, it, it really discourages the students' growth and learning in that school. Um, we have also have to address the weights for our English language learners. When the weights were created, they, um, we funded English language learner weights at 50% of what it should be Oh, one-fourth. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> one-fourth of where it should be. So there's weights, there's, um, there's testing, there is teacher preparation, making sure we have enough uh, teachers who are able to really support this, this um, beautiful part of our community. And so there, for me, those are the top three things we could do to prepare English language learners. Our state is growing in diversity. And we completely prepared for that. Make sure we are supporting our diverse student population. I'm not necessarily sure we are completely prepared for, for so that. So it sounds like, f I mean, funding them um, more adequately um, in the budget with weight, adjusting weights and all that. Yes, yeah, weights yeah. testing and teacher prep. Mm -hmm. 
on teacher building that center. I'm a student from the University of Texas as well, and I grew up in Austin. And from my experience in looking at public schools when I was deciding where to attend, um, I was faced with a variety of different and very specific issues of each institution that inhibited the quality of the education. And I feel that representatives are faced with this broad issue of understanding each school in their district. And that's very hard to do because there's a lot of schools. And Texas is a humongous state. I mean, we're huge. So how do we digest this information so that all of the legislators are able to understand the very specific problems and address them with successful legislation that has valid solutions for them? I'll take that one. Okay, go ahead, Chairman. You, you hit on one of the, the major <laughs> points. Every person on this panel has to vote their district or leave. I mean, that's just the reality. The, the problem becomes, whether you're talking about school finance or bilingual training or uh, education policy of any kind, is that while you have to represent your district, the, what the state needs is a broader view. And that state view has over half of your students in just a handful of districts. And it has 600 districts that have less than 10% of the students. So balancing that, that legislatively is a challenge. And it has been a challenge for many years and will continue to be a challenge. But at some point, the legislature will have to step aside from thinking about just our own districts and thinking about the, the mass of the number of students. And politically, that's a very treacherous and difficult thing to do. I wish it were different, but it's just the reality of our system. Is there a silver bullet for that in any way or no? No, no. I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think yeah. um, Next question, please. Hi, my name's Nishal Shah, and I also go here at the University of Texas Austin. I'm studying computer science. The reason I mention that is because many of you know the BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics has shown that there will be a lot of job openings in the STEM fields. Um, and there's also a disproportionate of minorities, whether that be African-Americans and uh, Hispanics and women, especially in those fields. Uh, how do we ensure from a high school and middle school level that we can encourage minorities to enter these fields? Because currently computer science and a lot of these other sort of computer science uh, offer, I believe it's something about 5% of all Texas high schools have a computer science program. Uh, how do we ensure that we're preparing all Texans for a 21st century? Are there, uh, yeah, are there any mechanisms for um, encouraging minority participation in those fields? Well, part of House Bill 5, we're yeah, allowing the endorsements. These, these endorsements and things. So you're encouraging. But once again, if you're a very small district, these are big challenges. And, and I'm not sure there is a silver bullet to do that other than giving resources that are outside of what they can actually have within but, their life. But you district. are already seeing your junior and community colleges step, step up, up to partner with public education on the courses in these endorsements. And so that's going to be the challenge. That's like I said, we're, we're so new to House Bill 5 implementation that I don't think we've, we can't judge the benefits of it yet, truly. But I think that is where the, the answer, one of the answers is that would provide access to almost all the students is through the endorsements because you've got to offer, every school is going to, and the online will be able to offer uh, courses uh, that might be that you may not be able to attract the teacher for even at your 
junior community college. Could someone describe House Bill 5 for him and what it, what it did well, specifically? House Bill 5, I reduced the number of tests that were required, but more importantly, I think, set up a series of endorsements, five endorsement areas that says early in your, your experience of education, you need to pick some general area and head that way. It's not like picking a major in college, but you sort of need to show an area of interest. And hopefully that will guide youngsters at a very young age to start thinking about, do I want to be more science-oriented, do more service-oriented, and things like that. Instruction online is important to all of that. Lots of things have to take place. But I think the key long-term to answering your, your dilemma is a seamless transition from early, early, early in education. Some people say we're trying to push it down too early, in fact, but, but pretty early. To, to making some choices that lead toward a seamless transition from middle school to high school to whatever's next, employment or community college or associate's degree, and, and eventually for many to a, a university degree. And, and trying to make that as seamless and painless to move back and forth and navigate that is, is what the bill was really about. And, and it's still pretty early to see how it's gonna work, but so far indication looks pretty good. Okay, we have a few more minutes. Um, next, Thank you. Yeah, next question. Hi, uh, I am wondering how the, the legislature can help with the craziness that is going on in the textbook approval process. <laughs> like a really thing about slavery being um, presented as immigration is like a really good example of how it's just not functional the way textbooks are happening now. And I know that y'all aren't approving textbooks, but is there any way to, to get this to be a more sane process? So there are efforts recently, I guess, to kind of uh, make some changes at the State Board of Education, which oversees that process. Is that, do you guys foresee any um, changes to the SBOE uh, to address um, textbook, the textbook adoption process? I would say that that was a bad thing that happened. <laughs> and, there, and there have been a number of bad things that have happened. But what I was going to say is the best thing that's happened is that we have transparency, that people are catching these things and then they're fixing these things. So the best thing you could do as a parent or anyone else is to watch the process and be involved in it. Because there are going to be some mistakes made no matter what. I mean, these are humans putting <laughs> these things together. That was found so far down the road. <laughs> well, I can, tell you, I can tell you some other things that came out with Common Core that came out in our education yeah. that were off the chart, too. When you compare, like, our Tea Party patriots, the ones the Boston Tea Party to terrorists. I mean, yeah. we had some real issues on, all the way around this thing. So the best thing you can have is transparency, which is what we tried to do mm -hmm. to put that in the process. And so you're not going to root out people making either mistakes or just egregious things, but by transparency, we can weed that out as it happens, because it's just gonna happen. And we can't pass a law if they don't do anything stupid. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a lot simpler if we could. But then we might do something stupid too. Representative Gonzalez, do you wanna? I, I completely agree with you. I think that that's one case where we have, that the textbook was bad, but there's other things that the SBOE has done that has really harmed a more accurate curriculum. And so I think what's unfortunate is the politi politicalization of the SBOE and how it's impacting young people's lives. And so 
I don't know the policy change to that, but I do think it's important for us to figure out a policy change because ultimately we're going to have a generation of young people who doesn't have, who hasn't been educated in a way that is that is accurate, right? So a, a big change that was recently made is schools are not required to use those textbooks. Well, well, That's important yeah, my to know. Twenty-seven yeah. and his yeah. his high school didn't use. Right, so schools have a choice. They don't have to use those textbooks if they don't yeah, want to. We have time for only one more question. I'm sorry. Um, hopefully this won't be too long, but um, I, it's kind of related to this and gets back to HB5, but the changes to the default high school curriculum um, since 2001 have in some, and I was just wondering, been pretty quickly, um, there have been three major changes, the last one with HB5, and I was just wondering from your all's perspective, sort of working on the inside, if you feel that you've had enough information from TEA and you've been able to see enough cohorts graduate with the different um, programs, starting with the recommended high school program that um, became effective in 2004, and then the 4x4 that happened in 2007, and then HB5, which just took effect. Do you guys think that that's... Are you asking if HB5 is wor like working well? No, I'm asking okay. if there's been enough data to really inform these... Like, if you guys have had data from TEA to show the cohorts, if, if the changes, if students are more college ready with these changes. Okay. The, your point is well made, is that there wasn't a lot of time in there. What was clear was it was 15 or 17, depending on how you count them, tests. We were headed to over half the high school seniors not graduating. And that was just not politically acceptable to be blunt. Uh, so cutting the test was, was important. The other things as far as the changing the graduation requirements, we were leaving behind about 60 or 70% of our students who were not on track to graduate, nor were they on track for any job readiness, and that's just not acceptable. And so the, what the data that we had looked like we were headed toward a cliff, as I called it, and, and we were diverting a cliff. Now, will there be need to fine-tune that process as we move forward? I think absolutely so but we were headed toward a very dangerous cliff with our students and large, many thousands of students were involved. And so part of it was a rescue effort. Rescue efforts sometimes require rescue and then modification, but, but that's, that's, that's what it was based on. Okay, before we applaud our awesome panel, um, I'm gonna remind you that this is the last session before lunch, um, and there are um, a sampling of uh, great food trucks out by the uh, main mall, um, kind of around that area, around the tower, um, and uh, programming will resume at 1.45. We wanna applaud our awesome panel.